You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. And shivers down your spine Shrieking skull will shock your soul And seal your doom tonight Spooky, scary skeletons Speak with such a screech You'll shake and shudder in surprise When you hear these zombies Hello and welcome to Oh No Lick Class The podcast that's been submitted for approval To the Midnight Society I'm Megan I'm dead RJ RJ's dead And this is our second Halloween special Ooh. I was gonna say, you were, you were gonna come in on that one? Ooh. 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 Oh. Oh. And um, this episode, we are continuing the cavalcade of spooks and scares with a collection of spine tingling short stories. Two of which were voted on by our patrons, and two which were chosen by us. So it's gonna be structured. A little bit differently than usual. I guess we'll get right to it. RJ will kick things off with the... Dead RJ. Dead RJ. Respect we'll... it. Why? Take my name out your mouth, but put it in. <laughs> yeah. And take, say it right. <laughs> take it out, add dead to it, then put it back in. Yep. Dead RJ. What's up? With our first story, this one voted for by our patrons. I guess you could say... The story you're presenting, and you want to say it like the Crypt Keeper or something. That is not what the Crypt Keeper sounds like. <laughs> Why do you think the Crypt Keeper goes? Rang? Oh, it's the casket opening. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that makes a little more sense. It, radio's theater of the mind. Ah. That's why imaging's important. All right, the casket opens. Rang. Yeah, well, wallpaper. That's still not what the Crypt Keeper uh, What would it sound like? Didn't the Crypt Keeper, wasn't it always just like, Welcome to Tales from the Crypt. Oh, you're better than me. Do it. Come on. The yellow wallpaper. So before I jump into the story, got to talk about the author. Yeah, also the fact that like it's, it's not necessarily considered a traditional horror story. I guess. Pretty uh, spoopy. It is pretty spoopy. I don't know how widely it gets taught uh, anymore. Did you have to read it in school? Yeah, yeah. multiple times. Yeah, I actually, yeah, me too, more than once. I got hot takes on this one. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it's always contextualized as like, here is this feminist framed short story and it's also spoopy and I don't know a damn thing about the lady who wrote it, so. So the lady who wrote it was Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Oh, perky. She was born July 3rd, 1860, and she died August 17th, 1935. Perky was born in Connecticut, Hartford, to be exact. Born in Connecticut, Hartford? <laughs> you want uh, to put a little pause? In Connecticut, Hartford, to be exact. Home of the Hartford Whalers. Oh, a hockey team that doesn't exist anymore. And the Brass Bonanza. Go know. Whalers, rip. <laughs> See, they're a dead thing. I'm, ta- I'm covering the dead spoopy thing. Ah, what's... A whole hockey team that died. <laughs> What is scarier than a defunct sports team? You want to sing the Brass Bonanza, Meg? I don't know what that is. Okay. Perky was born to Mom Perks, Mary Fitch Westcott, and Dad Perks, Frederick Beecher Perkins. She wound up only having one sibling, a brother, Thomas, as Mom Perkins was told by the family doctor that if she had more, she would die. 
So Perky must have been a terrible baby because while she was an infant, her father dipped out for some milk and never returned. As far as I know, fathers always leave because the kids suck. Papa, are you out there? I'm sorry. Come home. I'll be the best Archie I can. I promise. Oh, no. Actually, don't, because you're Michael Myers. And who wants that around? Wait, okay, like, there, there's like four different things there. Why is your dad Michael Myers? Dead RJ. Dead RJ's dad is Michael Myers. Yeah. Okay. That's why he's dead. What's spookier than childhood <laughs> abandonment issues? Oh, not a lot. <laughs> no, not really. Anyway, after dad dipped, Perks uh, and co. slid right into poverty. Luckily, not everyone on daddy's side of the family sucked, most notably his aunts, as they took Perk and co. in. The hero of that tale is some fine foxy piece of ass known as Harriet Beecher Stowe. What the fuck is wrong with you? So what you're saying is Harriet Beecher Stowe is not a fine foxy piece of ass. No, why do you have to describe her that way? Rawr. She's known for penning the erotic tale of Uncle Tom. Okay, nope, nope, nope. And no. the t- there is no, there is nothing erotic about Uncle Tom's cabin. That is a sentence that I never thought I was going to have to say. Maybe we'll cover that one day. Maybe we won't. Now we won't. So Perky grew up in Providence, Rhode Island. Her education was erratic at best. And she wrote in an autobiography that her mom only paid affection to her when mom thought Perky was asleep. Now that's a recipe for success right there. Oh yeah, that's how I raise a child, all right. So while Perky's educational lack, she was naturally smart according to others. When she hit college age, she attended the Rhode Island School of Design. It's a cool spot with a cool museum if you're ever in Providence. That's an oh no lit class travel tip. All aboard! Got new segments. (laughs) That really wasn't a segment so much as like, hey, here's a cool thing because we were in Rhode Island that one time. Yeah. Where they light water on fire for fun. All aboard. (laughs) All aboard. (laughs) Perky worked on art, like paintings and cards. She was accomplished in that field. At 24, she married Charles Walter Stetson. Sadly, he was not the creator of the Stetson hat. Darn. Yeah, no, he was just some bum. Perky could have done better, TBH. The two produced a daughter, Catherine Beecher Stetson. After the birthing... (laughs) What the fuck? Yeah, after the birthing, Perky developed what would be today recognized as postpartum depression, but in the 1800s they called women hysteria, or nervousness. Crazy lady disease. The solution back then? Sending women to sanatoriums. More on that in a bit. Within four years of marriage, the couple separated and later divorced. Perky moved out to California to become part of the liberal progressive elite. She joined many political activist groups, several of them focused on women's liberation and equality. She sent her daughter back across the country to live with dad and his new wife, and Perky surmised that the family situation there was better than what she could offer. Also, she speculated that the ex's new wife may actually be a better mom to the daughter. That's kind of heavy. Also, Perky was kind of selling soap door-to-door to support herself, so she wasn't exactly doing great. She did still play an active role in her daughter's life until death, but the two never lived together again. Perky did eventually gain notoriety for her writing and her lecturing in California, finding support for her politics and her ideas. She even traveled abroad to talk on issues of women equality. She also spoke on racial issues. And well, being a cishet female that spent her childhood around the same place, around the same time as H.P. Lovecraft, oh no, what class alumnus? and noted bigot, lived in, (laughs) it's maybe not such a shock, what followed. Gilman wrote in the American Journal of Sociology, quote, 
The problem with race in America is this. Given in the same country race A progressed in social evolution, say to status 10, and race B progressed in social evolution to say status 4, given that race B in its present condition does not develop fast enough to suit race A. Oh no. Question, how can race A best and most quickly promote the development of race B? Mm-mm. She posited that all people of race B, B's for black, mm. quote, a certain grade of citizenship those who were not decent, self-supporting, and progressive should be taken hold of by the state. You know, like they did for Native American children. Oh, and like OHP, she was really worried about immigrants mixing their blood with nice white American blood. She famously said, quote, I am Anglo-Saxon before everything. What is it about Providence, Rhode Island that just, uh, that grows racists? <laughs> so Perky, now having got that off her white chest, was in her early 40s. <laughs> like many male authors had done in the past, Perky decided to marry a first cousin. Gross. She wrote him a letter. Yeah, hello cousin, let us marry. Oh, much more graphic. Much more, hello cousin, let's fuck. Let's fuck a lot. Uh, it might have helped that he was a Wall Street attorney. And so, they fucked and married until he had a cerebral hemorrhage. They married until he had a hemorrhage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they did. Then they were no longer married. Look, this might sound like I'm exaggerating a bit, but here's the thing. He was her first cousin. She reached out to him. She made it clear in her diary that she wanted that dick. The word she used a lot was, quote, pleasurable. And eventually, he popped the vein in his head. Death by snoo-snoo. That's not, no. Case closed. Oh, God. After the death, Perky moved back to California to be near her daughter. In her early 70s, Perky developed breast cancer. Being a supporter of euthanasia, it should not be surprising what she did next. Specifically, she overdosed on chloroform, which to overdose on, you need to do a lot. I know movies make it seem like chloroform is a magic sleeping drug. No, she takes minutes to fall asleep, including multiple dosings. Look it up. Anyway, Perky wrote in her final note, quote, I chose chloroform over cancer. There's, there's easier, quicker... What year What year was this? Well, if you were listening at the beginning... Oh, I got distracted by all the cousin fucking and racism. <laughs> 1935. There were definitely way better options if you really wanted to kill yourself that would have been less labor-intensive than chloroform. Like, people were still using um, heroin and shit as, like, cough medicine. Like, you just drink... Like a good chug of that and you're done. This might also be a good time to remind everyone that it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Save the boobies. Also save the people, you know, attached to the boobies. Well, if you save the boobies, you save the woman. Also, men can get breast cancer. That's why I said save the breast. Okay, so just save all... Save That's why I said breast cancer. Fine. I said save the boobies. Men have boobies too. I refer to mine as boobies. <laughs> Fair enough. But cancer is bad. Donate money. Yep. But not to Susan G. Komen because... Wow. Way to get political. They, that's not a political thing. They don't, like, use the money for cancer research. They award, like, they're... The, it they depends how you define research. To, see, to, like, their CEOs and shit. Susan Jacobin is not a good cancer foundation. Someone has to pay the CEOs. The American Breast Cancer uh, Research Center. That's the one. All right. So, now you know all about Perky. And why your feminism isn't good feminism if it isn't intersectional. All right. So, the yellow wallpaper. Short story. To give a quick overview, there's a few main characters just to mention and make it a little bit clear. There is the narrator who is really never named. We see the entire story through basically her diary. There is John, her physician slash husband, or so we're told. There's a baby 
who we never really see or hear from, but is apparently there. And then there's a list of women that we'll talk about. We know Jenny's there, and we know, at least we're told, Jenny is John's sister. And then there's a couple other names that pop up, which we'll talk about. Okay. So we're welcomed into the story by the unnamed uh, narrator. Again, the story is told through first-person narration, through what seems to be diary entries. She tells us that her husband, John, is a physician and that she's sick. Now, she doesn't feel sick. She doesn't look sick. In fact, she says John and her brother, who's also a physician, they don't think she's sick. Just that she's struggling with a bit of nervous depression. That she has a, quote, slight hysterical tendency. Mm. Nowadays, we might call what she was presenting as postpartum depression. So the narrator then throws out there that John is perhaps, quote, one reason I don't get well faster. She doesn't really elaborate. The narrator tells us that they and them, not really specifying exactly who makes up that group, do not want her to write and would rather she kind of just chill. She says that she'll write in spite of them, even though it really does exhaust her a great deal, especially when she has to be so sly about the whole affair. The narrator then begins to describe the house they're in. It's a rental. They're going to be there for a few weeks. It seems to be like three or four weeks. It's old. It's a bit dilapidated, but quaint at the same time. She tells us there is a, quote, delicious garden. (laughs) Does she live deliciously in the garden? Up for debate. (laughs) She then tells us that, quote, I never saw such a garden, large and shady, full of box-bordered paths and lined with long grape-covered arbors with seats under them. Her room, which she refers to her and John's room, or excuse me, her room, which she refers to as her and John's room, seems to be the old nursery in the home. The narrator never really describes the room in super detail. We know there's a bed. She says there's a window that has bars on the outside of it. That seems like an important detail. And that there's some pretty interesting yellow wallpaper, to say the least. In short, the narrator refers to the room as an atrocious nursery. But she says it's better for her to have it than the baby. Don't want to upset the baby. But the bars on the windows and the gross yellow wallpaper. We're not given great insight to the relationship between the narrator and John. She writes that he's gone a lot during the day, especially when the cases are serious. In fact, when the cases are very serious, he spends nights in town, unable to get back to her. It seems like most nights are nights of serious cases. The narrator excitedly explains... Serious cases. We're going to talk about that. Oh, we're not sure. So the narrator excitedly explains, quote, I'm glad my case is not serious, but these nervous troubles are dreadfully depressing. So things start to get a little weird in this story. So there hasn't been much in the way of actually seeing the baby. In fact, we never really see the baby through the narrator's eyes at all. We never get a description of the baby. We never get a name. The narrator never mentions hearing the baby. All she ever says is that she can't see the baby. She then throws this line out there. Quote, it is fortunate Mary is so good with the baby. Such a dear baby. And yet, I cannot be with him. It makes me so nervous. So, I guess at least we learn the baby's gender. But who the hell is Mary? We never heard of her before, and we never hear about Mary again. Oh, that's it, huh? That's the one line we hear about Mary. <laughs> and despite all this, the narrator is perhaps beginning to go a bit stock... baby's dead. The narrator is beginning to go a bit stock Quote, but I don't mind it a bit. Only the paper. Uh, RJ? Yeah? I don't think you know what Stockholm Syndrome is. That's when you start to feel affection or affinity or whatever to your captor. I think the house is the captor here. 
As for that paper, the narrator mentions that Jenny, John's sister, who's staying with them to help out, has told her to be careful of the wallpaper as it leaves yellow smooches all over her and John's clothes when they brush along the walls. Icky. Yeah, a little bit. Kind of gross. During their stay, 4th of July comes and goes. And what is a better way to get over nervousness than celebrating the 4th of July? Oh, yeah. Oh, and a family visit. We're told that her family comes to stay with her and John for about a week. We're told her mother and Nellie and the children all come. It's unclear exactly who Nellie is, but I guess we're to assume it's her sister. We're really not told about anything during that week. She didn't make any diary entries that week at all, only like after the fact. She's like, oh, that was nice. And was there still in this house that apparently is not her house? Right, they're renting it. Yeah. So the narrator begins to notice a deterioration in her condition. I cry at nothing and cry most of the time. Of course, I don't when John is here or anybody else, but when I am alone. Now, it isn't so hard to hide as the narrator mentions that John is away more and more of the time now. And Jenny leaves her alone whenever she asks Jenny to leave her alone. The narrator goes for walks, sits on the porch, lies around a bit a good deal. Really, she's just left to her own devices. As the days wear on, she continues to grow fond of the wallpaper. Now that Stockholm Syndrome is really growing stronger. There you go. She says, I'm getting really fond of the room in spite of the wallpaper. Perhaps because of the wallpaper. It dwells in my mind so. (laughs) She then adds a few important details about the room. The bed she's been laying in this whole time is actually nailed down to the floor. (laughs) That's normal. Yeah. Your bed isn't? And as she lays there on the immovable bed, looking at the wallpaper, following the pattern with her eyes for hours on end, she says... Didn't didn't have TV, you know? She says it's like gymnastics. She also notices a part of the wallpaper that seems to be untouched, which she says will be the place she will start to follow the pattern to some sort of conclusion to figure out what is in the pattern. The narrator mentions she really isn't sleeping much at night anymore in order to, quote, watch developments, like the wall, the lady, um, you know, she sees in the wall below the wallpaper oh and john sleeping because of this she says she sleeps throughout the day you know because being awake all night leaves one tired Uh, yeah it happens with all this staring at the wall she notices that there's a mark along the wall a low one along the mop board a streak it goes around the entire wall except where the bed is a long consistent smooch all around the room does it say smooch? Yes, yeah, smooch. Okay. It's such Everything's a weird, a just a long smooch. She describes it as round and round and round. It makes me dizzy. And then she finally figured out what's causing all of this. The front pattern does move. And no wonder the woman behind shakes it. Of course. Obviously. It's, it's good she put her detective hat on and solved this problem because it's finally the last day in the house. And she's so excited to help the woman escape from behind the wallpaper. She locks the door of the room, blocking the door with whatever furniture she can, and begins to crawl around the room to pull the wallpaper off the wall, as if everything's all fine and good. Gotta get that lady out of there. John, wanting to get going, tries to get into the room, quickly realizing there's a problem. While he breaks the door down, him and Jenny are standing there, looking at the narrator crawling around on the floor, pulling the paper off the wall, and well, here's how the story ends. What is the matter, he cried. For God's sake, what are you doing? I kept on creeping just the same, but I looked at him over my shoulder. I've got out at last, said I, in spite of you, and Jane, and I've pulled off most of the paper, so you can't put me back. Now why should that man have fainted? But he did, right across my path by the wall, so that I had to creep over him every time. Every time. Every time. So she kept crawling around at the bottom of the floor. But now she mentioned a Jane, 
Jane had ever been mentioned before. There was a there was a it was a Jenny. Jenny's the sister, right? So there's Mary who cares for the baby. Now there's this Jane who she's like doing this in spite of. There's a lot of names floating around that don't attach to people, and that's how the story ends. Just the image of her continually crawling around the room across the doctor slash husband's body as he weighs there, and sister-in-law Jenny looks on in horror, and potentially someone named Jane, and Jane. And I'm just going to assume that she's crawling like one like that fucking like kid from the grudge oh creeping she calls she calls what she's doing is creeping <laughs> creeping creep over him every time just creeping and i guess she and the the lady in the wallpaper have they've merged they've become one all right so there's a couple different ways you can maybe read this was jane her and now she's the lady that's in the wallpaper and she has a different name that we don't know oh that makes sense Okay, I got out in spite of in spite of Jane because I am the wallpaper lady. Right, and then, or maybe she was Mary, and the split personality was who was writing to us. There, there's a lot of weird stuff going on. When I actually first read this in school, and I still play around with this reading, you you can maybe if you want to take the story at face value, that's about postpartum depression, and then the woman kind of goes crazy being locked in the house the whole time. You know, but. I think then you're maybe also overlooking the fact that maybe this is just also someone who's crazy on top of it. That you never actually see her and John in any romantic way. Like, they never kiss. They don't hug. She mentions he sleeps there, like, one time and she kind of just looks at his body in the bed. Um, But, like, they don't hold each other. I think you could read it that he's a doctor. And she is a patient. Jenny is the nurse. And so he goes to other cases and calls. Right. Or maybe goes home to his family. (laughs) And that she's at some sort of falling apart... Asylum. Yeah. I think that was the reading that our teacher... No, there was one time where was that, and then there was another one where the first time that I was assigned it, and it was more of a the idea that, that they thought, like, John was her husband, and there was a, the other doctor, her brother, and that um, it was just this thing of that she goes kind of just nuts because they just won't listen to her, that she's they're just trying, that she's just being, like, locked away and that they don't, they're not giving her sort of any mode of expression because they don't want her to write, they don't want her to, like, do anything, and that it's, like, a literal, like, escape kind of thing. I mean, I, th- I think there's a different ways to read it. Yeah, you know, that when I've taught it in the past, my students thought she was literally locked in a room like a prisoner, and that's not the case. She kind of has free reign of the house, which is still kind of secluded. And so, I guess you maybe have to take the leap and decide if you're thinking that if she starts off as reliable and becomes unreliable, or you have to decide if she's unreliable from the beginning, right? And just remains unreliable throughout. Um, you know, part of it, it you know, with the story and how people read it, is Gilman herself had postpartum depression and she was given the rest cure where she wasn't allowed to write. And so this was kind of a response to that. And look at you men, we're going to crawl over you. <laughs> going to crawl all over you. Yeah. So the lady in the wallpaper then? Unclear. Well, that's the woman breaking out and right. the feminist were going to break out and <laughs> crawl over the men. But if, like you're saying, if she's potentially unreliable from like the very beginning. There really isn't a person in the <laughs> wallpaper. No, I, what? What? <laughs> what? If you want to learn more about unreliable narrators, you can go pledge a dollar on our Patreon and you can listen to a bonus episode all about different kinds of unreliable narrators and famous literary examples. Just throwing that out there. Anything else you want to say about the yellow wallpaper? No, not particularly. Still kind of spooky. It is spooky. It's going insane with that wallpaper. I forgot until you kind of reminded me just that about that when she talks about tracing like the pattern 
and just like seeing things in it and stuff. I remember when I read it, it made me think of um, when I was a little kid and I was running like such a bad fever that I was having like the, you know, like fever hallucinations Mm. and stuff. And that I kept seeing like things moving in like the pattern on like my bed sheets and stuff. And one other thing that when I like actually sat down to reread it, what sticks out to me is like the fact that you know, there's bars on the window that she mentions early in the story. It's not like she focuses on it. She's like, oh, I'm just laying in bed, you know, looking at the sun as the shadows, you know, cut across the bars on the window, <laughs> looking at the wallpaper. When she like kind of mentions like just haphazardly, oh yeah, I'm just laying on my immovable bed. Yeah. And that, that it's just like, just so matter of factly that part of me, that's why I want to read it as an unreliable narrator because it was a sane person who is locked in a room. Like, to me, the first thing you'd be like, I'm locked in a room with bars on the window. The bed is nailed down. I am in a prison. I am, like, completely unhappy. Not like, yeah, the gardens are all nice. And, <laughs> you know, the room, eh, not ideal, but, you know, <laughs> except for the wallpaper. Eh. You know, and so that just sticks out to me. It's like, if you're reliable, why does this stuff, like, kind of just come out? This is that. So there have been a lot of adaptations of the Yellow Wallpaper. Really? Well, there's a lot of stage adaptations. There's been a radio adaptations. There's been a bunch of short films. Probably the most notable of all the adaptations, though, is the Twilight Zone episode called Something in the Walls. In the episode, a woman shows up to an asylum asking to be admitted. She complains she's been seeing things in the yellow wallpaper of her bedroom. She asks to be placed in a room with plain white walls. And then she begins to see faces in the plain white wall, and eventually a wall being comes out of the wall, pushes her into the wall, takes her shape, and then just lives as her and gets out of the hospital. What? The, okay, so... What a twist. So the twi- I've seen a lot of Twilight Zone. What? Something like, what in the year, walls. What year was that? Was that like when it, during like the revival in the 80s? Or? Yeah. That's why. Season three. Yeah, the revival in the 80s was when they were just doing weird shit. Because I was going to say, Rod Serling would not have looked at that short story and been like, okay, but what if literal wall people? <laughs> yeah, literal wall people. You're coming in and out. <laughs> the, the man who did the monsters do on Maple Street would not have made that story. So I had a feeling. I was like, yeah, that sounds like 80s revival Twilight Zone. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people, they've done like a lot of stage adaptations of it and done short films. You know, not like a movie adaptation because it is a pretty short story. Right, yeah, there wouldn't be. I'd be interested to see how a stage version of that would go just because I feel like it would be harder to have that like you said that that lack of clarity with people what people are there and what they who they are and stuff like that oh you would have to make a decision yeah commit to it yeah (laughs) boo ha ha hope I didn't scare you too much there the I'm sorry. That was, you know, that was kind of rude. It was, that was my bad. It was in poor taste, and I, uh, I apologize. I, I hope you're otherwise enjoying this spooky episode of short stories that were both brought to you by and voted on by our horrifying patron. They're not horrifying. Our patrons are lovely and great. And currently, you know how many more of them there need to be for me to stop doing this? Ten. Ten more. But until then, I'd like to thank Chris at Play Comics, Melina, Ariel at Ariel Teague, Alexander, Kiki, Ben at KNSJM, Florian, Sarah C, Lucas, Karen, Not Alone Podcast at Not Alone Pod, Barry, Aaron, Brandon, Jen, Katie, 
Aries, Janet, Sam, Amy B, Dirk Dammit, At Killing You Guys, Samariel, Camilla, Amy W, Pseudobred, Wendy, Cheryl, Tanner, Jared, Kendall, Morgan, Mad, Sarah R, Lonnie at Lanyon, Caitlin at Rose of Phantom, ES, Kate D, Natalie, Anne, and Matthew, ya boy, Chips Ahoy. I hope you're proud of yourself, sir. <laughs> this episode's pod pals are Chris and Kaylee from the Meddling Kids podcast, which is a Scooby-Doo fan cast that is just so fucking cute and good that it's scary. They also shouldn't say fucking in regards to it because it is a very good family-friendly show where they don't say fucking, usually, at least, in the ones I listen to. They probably don't say fucking. But there's, it's, it's, it's good. It's a, it's, a good sh- it's a good show. Check it out. Do you like action? Yes. Adventure? Of course. Spooky ghosts? Um. Scary monsters? Not really. Then why not check out Bedley Kids? Listen in as Chris and Kaylee take a journey through the adventures of Scooby Doo and those humans he's deemed cool enough to hang out with him. Listen everywhere your favorite podcasts are found. Like right next to that clue over there. Or at meddlingkidspod.com. And so to move on to the other one that was voted by our patrons. And that is the legend of, or do I have to say this in the voice also? (laughs) That's a cat noise. (laughs) (laughs) That's a sexy cat noise? The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Uh, by Washington Irving. So, there's so much shit about Washington Irving. You do not even understand. Like, we, we could probably do multiple episodes on Washington Irving, America's first, like, baller-ass writer, potential, like, egotter. If he, if he was in the modern day, he would have been an egot, or done an egot, or whatever the hell the verb. He, he would have egotted, because he just, he did everything. So, Washington Irving, uh, named after George Washington, as you might assume. Whoa! Born April 3rd, 1783, died November 28th, 1859, lived in Terrytown, New York. Terrytown makes me think of, it's the name of the town in uh, Breath of the Wild that you build with all of the, the city. Okay. Um, Irving is often credited as the first American man of letters, which means he was the first person in the United States to learn how to read. Or the first to earn a living solely through his writing. One, uh, one of those. No, he said he was the first to sell back in Europe. Well, no, that was another thing. That was one of... There's a lot of things. But yeah, he was considered like the first American to earn a living just just through the means of his pen. Uh, He's also giving credit as having been the one to truly shape the American short story, to write stories set in the U.S. And if that wasn't enough, as you said, he was also the United States' first internationally best-selling author. He also wrote the short story that Click was based on. Sort of. (laughs) We'll get there. Do you like Click? Do you like Adam Sandler? <laughs> no, not Thank really. Thank your local Washington Irving. <laughs> Basically, he did all the writing in America first. That's how you become famous, kids. You just have to be the first to do a thing. Even if you do it kind of shitty, no one can take away that you were the first to do it. Ray J. <laughs> <laughs> in Irving's case, 
he just hogged all the writing for himself. Except, no, he, he didn't actually do that. He's very well known for being super encouraging to other writers at the time, and was basically the team dad to what would become some of the country's best-known Ono Lit Class alums, including Herman Melville, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and Edgar Allan Poe. Poe, however, ever the problem child, critiqued Irving for being overrated and an unsophisticated writer, and that people needed to be better at separating, like, the guy who did stuff first from guy who did it well, which all sounds pretty on brand for Poe, the man who is constantly trying to get into fights with everybody and looking for any excuse to have a bitch fit. Just always wanting to throw hands. Apart from writing short stories, Irving was also an essayist, historian, biographer, and diplomat. Dude kept busy. His most famous biographies include his namesake, George Washington, and the Prophet Muhammad, because Irving refused to be limited. Talking about people who like to throw hands. You ever see Ali fight? They're great. Yep, that was it. Muhammad Ali. He wrote, he he wrote was, that biography. He was the prophet. <laughs> he, he beat you up. You know what they called it? Prophetizing. Yeah. Yep. Prophetizing? Yep. You mean proselytizing? Yeah, whatever. He did George <laughs> Foreman in that fucking grill. Yep, that's right. He beat him with his grill. Catch his um, hands, grill. God. Rumble in the grill's jungle. Let's please stop saying words. <laughs> rumble in the grundle. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. I want to rumble in the grundle. Also, he created a huge literary hoax about a missing historian and in doing so ended up being responsible for naming an NBA team. The year was 1809. He was 26 years old and in mourning for his dead 17-year-old fiance which is gross. And he decided to take that grief and weaponize it as fuel to fuck with the American people. He wrote a satirical book called A History of New York from the Beginning of the World to the End of the Dutch Dynasty by Diedrich Knickerbocker. And it was like, man, I don't think anybody's gonna give a shit about this book. What can I do to fix that? Marketing didn't really exist yet, I guess. <laughs> so the answer, of course, ended up being instead, put a bunch of missing person notices in the newspapers, offering a reward for information on this fictional Dutch historian that I made up. And he invents this whole story about Dietrich Knickerbocker going missing in a hotel in New York and leaving behind the mysterious manuscript. And readers totally bought into it, and they ate it up, and the book was hugely successful, to the point where the, this... F fictional historian became the narrator of a lot of his short stories and things that he wrote, including The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And uh, Knickerbocker ended up becoming a nickname for people who lived in Manhattan and eventually became the name of the basketball team, the New York Knickerbockers. The Brooklyn Nets? Y yep, the New <laughs> the Brooklyn Nets. The New York Islanders? Yep, the Buffalo Sabres. <laughs> the New York Knicks. So if you ever wondered why the New York Knicks are called that, now you know it's because of a marketing ploy prank by Washington Irving to get people to buy his historical satire book. Even sports aren't safe from literary nerd shit. Irving died of a heart attack at the age of 76. How American. But it's possible that he was perhaps murdered by a gang of young up-and-coming writers who were determined to kill him so that there might be some American literary firsts left for people that weren't Washington Irving. So they killed him by giving him McDonald's? Yes. So America. So the most American. Uh, Irving's two most famous pieces of fiction are the short story Rip Van Winkle, uh, about a dude who sleeps for 20 years and misses the Revolutionary War, and it's just kind of like, shrug. <laughs> the basis for the Adam Sandler film click. Yeah. <laughs> and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which was published in 1820. The short story, like everything else Irving did, left a massive, permanent mark on American culture, creating an inextricable link between Halloween and vengeful, decapitated mercenaries. They ripped us a new one. Yep. 
So, uh, there are apparently lots of British, Irish, German, and other European legends of headless horse persons galloping around and terrorizing people, and Irving, who spent almost 20 years dicking around in Europe, presumably heard them, and in the true entrepreneurial spirit of America went, I'm going to take this. This is mine now. And he poached these folktales to make the legend of Sleepy Hollow, a story about two dudes who are both horny for the same girl to the point of potentially committing murder. Halloween. (laughs) Here's the story, as it is horsemaned. So there's this little village in New York that's so sleepy and boring and quiet that they literally named it Sleepy Hollow. Except that the people of Sleepy Hollow, perhaps in an effort to make their town sound less excruciatingly dull, are like, nah, Sleepy Hollow's crazy haunted. Just stuffed to the fucking gills with ghosts and witches and magic and shit. Because it's cursed. We don't know why, it just is. Stop asking questions and come visit our super cool and totally not boring cursed town. Wait, no, where are you going? We also have a headless horseman and he's super neat and he probably killed a guy. And according to the townsfolk, the Headless Horseman is said to be the ghost of a Hessian mercenary. That was a German, the the Hessians. That was hired by the British to fight in the Revolutionary War who got his head blown off by a cannonball. Just clean off. Now his ghost, which is still real good at riding a horse, you know, all things considered, rides to the town church every night to find his buried head. Why would they bury the head? You stick that shit on pikes. Yeah, I don't know. Also, if you got your head blown off by a cannonball, how much head is, is gonna be left? He's looking for the ball. Yeah, it's just that that's my head now. Anyway, our narrator's like, yeah, these yahoos are all in on this goofy-ass horseman story. Not that I'm making fun of them or anything like that, obviously. And then introduces the main character, Ichabod Crane, a tall, skinny man with weird, bulging eyes who's the town school teacher. And what a name. Yeah. Ichabod Crane. Have you ever met an Ichabod? No, I've, I've never had the pleasure. Have you? No. It's kind of sad. <laughs> yeah, name never caught on. Shame. Well, if you have a kid, you can name him Ichabod. I'm going to name him Sticky Icky. That's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> As protagonists go, Ichabod is, um, well, he's there, I guess. He beats his students and treats teaching like a huge power trip. He hits on his students' mothers and bums off them for free food. In fact, he's constantly just mooching off of people for free food in general. That's like his main focus in life, but especially if they're attractive ladies. Is he smooching off of them? No, because they don't want none of that. He's also the choir master, and while we're not really told if he's a good singer, we do know that he's very proud that he's a loud singer, to the point where he could be heard more than half a mile away, which honestly sounds terrifying. (laughs) Like, some guy who's almost a mile away and you could just hear him, like, fucking screaming hymns. That's good. That's a good pair of lungs right there. Yep. That Ichabod. That old Ichabod. He's also braggy about being a smart dude who's read more books than anyone else and likes to show off by reciting poetry and stories. His favorites are scary stories. Ichabod loves telling scary stories to freak people out, except he's also a huge superstitious baby and at night gets scared of his own footsteps. So there's this young woman in town named Katrina Van Tassel, the only daughter of one of the richest men in town. Ichabod decides he's going to marry Katrina, partially because she's hot, but mostly because he's a gold digger and he wants her family's fortune. What a guy. Well, this should totally be easy because Ichabod is just such a catch. I mean, who wouldn't want a piece of that? His attempts to win Katrina's heart are being thwarted by a romantic rival named Brom Bones Van Brunt. Yes. (laughs) So... Bones is hot, jacked as fuck, and just has a great name, but is apparently not very good at flirting and can't seal the deal either. So is he the story's Gaston? Yes. 
Except that, like, Ichabod is not any more likable than him. <laughs> was the Beast any more likable than Gaston? Yeah, eventually. Once oh, he eventually, stopped, once he stopped well, being a, a tool. Oh, let's see what happens with Ichabod, huh? Uh, all right, let's see what happens. Ichabod starts giving Katrina choir lessons and trying to seduce her. And Brom gets pissed and challenges Ichabod to a duel, which he refuses to do because he's a weenie and he knows that Brom, the bones man, Van Brunt, would kick his ass. So instead, Brom just pulls pranks on Ichabod and convinces him that he's being haunted because Ichabod's an idiot. One night, Katrina's dad is throwing a party for the whole town and Ichabod is stoked to go, riding there awkwardly on his shitty horse and thinking about eating all that sweet free food. Which is what he does when he gets there. He doesn't even really acknowledge Katrina. He just makes a fucking beeline for like the buffet table. <laughs> so he eats all the food. He dances badly. And he chills out with some old people to tell stories about the headless horseman. Brom shows up to be like, yeah, I totally got into a horse race with him one time. And I kicked his ass. Except then he disappeared. And everyone's like, okay, sure, sure, Brom. That happened. At the end of the night, Ichabod proposes to Katrina. And shock. She turns him down. <laughs> Who could have foreseen this? She read the book on negging. <laughs> the ultimate move. When you like somebody, you turn them down. That makes them like you more. You got a neg. Yeah. Yeah. That's her plan. That's her plan. He rides home all depressed, uh, and he gets nervous remembering the scary stories that they all told earlier at the party. And then he gets spooked by a scary tree. That makes masturbating so much harder. <laughs> It's hard to jack off when the trees are spooky. Yes. <laughs> and uh, then he comes face to face. Yeah, he comes all right. <laughs> face to face with a huge horseman, all in black. Now, this guy does have a head, which is good, but it's in his lap, which is not good. And so Ichabod... So he's not headless. Well, it's true. He's not headless. He's the horseman who does have a head, just not where, not where it's supposed to be, which is... It doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well as the headless horseman. The horseman who has the head, but not on his shoulders. You know what I call that? Carrying him around. A horseman. His head is removed from his shoulders. Ichabod freaks out and tries to ride away from him, but he's a shitty rider on an equally shitty horse, and the headless horseman chases after him. Ichabod. Oh, it's not a headless horseman. The horseman whose head. The horseman. (laughs) The horseman in black, even. The man in black. His most defining feature is the, the lack black. of a head the on black. his shoulders. That's black. why Ichabod wasn't just like, oh, that's just some dude on a horse. Yeah, anyway, I think his most defining feature is he's born all black. Who wears all black? <laughs> he ain't no minister. Yeah, everybody everybody might not have a head, but who wears all black? Oh, trust me, he still had a head. <laughs> God damn it. He has as many heads as all the women around. Ichabod remembers that the horseman is supposed to disappear when he reaches the church, and so Ichabod desperately rides to the church, making it by the skin of his teeth. He relaxes, thinking he's successfully escaped, except... Except... Wrong church. (laughs) He went went to the Baptist church, not the Presbyterian one. Episcopal. (laughs) Except that the horseman is right behind him, and he just decides to up and fucking huck his head right at Ichabod. And it clocks him with it and knocks him off his horse. <laughs> He's been looking everywhere for his stupid head. And he finds it and he just chucks it at Ichabod for no apparent reason. Because fuck him. Yeah. <laughs> Eat head, asshole. And that's the last we see of Ichabod. The next morning, all the townsfolk are able to find of him is his horse wandering around on its own. His hat trampled on the ground. And a shattered pumpkin. They see all this and are like... Hmm, yeah, guess the horseman took him away forever. Case closed. Time to find a new school teacher. <laughs> and that's just what they do. Any questions? 
Andy. Damn it! Oh, you found my calling card. Yeah, I'm David Pumpkins. Yes. Oh yeah, David S. Pumpkins. God damn it! I'm so angry. Right now. Yeah, no one's particularly upset that Ichabod was seemingly ghost murdered, and and I can't say I blame them because he was kind of a dick. Never mind the fact that whenever people retell the story of Ichabod being hunted by the horseman that Brom Bones laughs ominously, or that an angry dude with a motive to harm Ichabod who had been previously playing pranks on him lobbing a pumpkin at his head and then murdering him seems more probable. Ichabod was definitely murdered by a decapitated ghost man. The end. So yeah, that's uh, that's a story that captured the American imagination for 200 plus years, inspiring hundreds of adaptations on the stage and musicals and radio plays and TV shows and movies and just it, everything, just like everything. Scooby Doo episodes. Um, the pinnacle still being David S. Pumpkin. Well, David S. Pumpkin doesn't have a headless horseman. <laughs> That's completely unrelated. These are about, into pumpkins. This is about pumpkins. <laughs> well, the headless horseman doesn't always have. Sometimes he's carrying his head. Sometimes his head is a pumpkin. That became a fairly popular iconography. There's a Tim Burton movie that just completely changed the story and makes it bad. And Johnny Depp plays Ichabod Crane, who's like a detective or something, and he's just sort of awkward and weird. And the uh, horseman is a real demon with pointy needle teeth who only communicates with by angry squawks and is played by Christopher Walken. <laughs> and he just goes, Brah! <laughs> It's fucking just great. And then the TV show, Sleepy Hollow, which came out just a few years ago, uh, where Ichabod is a hot dude who fought in the Revolutionary War and is magically awakened in the present day to help a similarly hot cop lady solve crimes. But uh, what I knew this from first, because I actually had not read this until this episode, I remembered like the cartoon. I think it was made in like the 50s or something. It was like a Looney Tunes-ish thing. And then generally, I feel like in that, and usually Ichabod is just kind of like, more of just sort of a dork. Just like this kind of easily spooked dork and not like this douchebag. <laughs> yeah, no, he's just a really unlikable guy. And, you know, that's on purpose. Like Irving makes a point of, of making it very clear at the end that it's just kind of like, yeah, it makes a lot more sense that Brom definitely killed him. But the townspeople are just like, eh, spooky ghost. Who gives a shit? <laughs> you kill an unlikable guy. We'll let you get away with it. Apparently. So had you ever read this? I'm pretty sure. It doesn't... It's been a long time. Yeah, that's fine. Um, it doesn't have quite the same spooky impact as a lady going crazy, potentially, in a sanatorium and, and tearing up wallpaper. And the second story I'm going to read is is way scarier than this, I think. But it's, it's a classic. I guess, what is it do you think that's made it, like endure for so long and become so embedded in the American consciousness to the point where Terrytown, which I mentioned before, in 1997, officially changed its name to Sleepy Hollow, and all of their school sports teams are called the Horsemen. I think the iconography probably helps, that just the image of a headless horseman is just kind of spoopy on itself, like you just draw like a guy without a head <laughs> on a horse. It's like, whoa, what's, what's <laughs> whoa. going on there? What's it's just, his it's deal? Just, I think it's just so easily recognizable. Like an icon mm. and a logo. Mm. That that helps. Probably. People love Halloween. And then also, it's a European story brought to America, made American. We love that shit. <laughs> Damn right we do. Took someone else's story. It made it ours. <laughs> Fuck you, world. We did it better. <laughs>
It's American now. America. And then also probably Washington Irving was a big deal at the time and he wrote it. So that just made it a bigger deal then. And so that's the story everyone tells their kids. And that's what just gets passed on. It's kind of like an institution now. Right. And Edgar Allan Poe stays salty about it. (laughs) Yep. That's why it's important to be there first. It's true. Because then you get to set the bar. And you're always the original. Yep. And so there's always Sleepy Hollow. The first spooky American tale. Got you there. From Europe. <laughs> Shh. So you know what's even spookier, Meg, than these stories? What? The fact we're at the end of the show. But, RJ, we've only done half the spooky stories. Well, you know what the listeners are going to have to do? No, I don't. Not die. And tune in next week. <gasps> For a special Halloween bonus surprise? Dun, dun, dun. So while you're sitting at home, pigging out on all that delicious candy that you stole from your kids. Little fuckers. So hold your horses. (laughs) uh, Hold your horsemen for part two of our short story Halloween spooktacular, which will be the not November... We don't need to give the date. They don't fucking need it. It'll be on fucking Halloween. It'll be on Halloween. On Halloween. Until then, you can check us out on Twitter at OnoLitClassPod or on Facebook and join our spooky Facebook group. Or check us out at Tumblr at onolitclass.tumblr.com. You can listen to us on iTunes where you can leave us ratings and reviews or on Spotify where you can't do either of those things or anywhere where you find podcasts, but also at onolitclass.com. You can also uh, pledge to our Patreon at patreon.com slash onolitclass to get so much bonus content and awesome stickers and posters and shirts and prizes that it's scary. So, until Halloween, I'm Megan. I'm dead, RJ. We love you. Bye. And she wrote in an autobiography. Autobiography. She wrote in an autobiography. Autobiography. That's how you say.